Chapter Two of Mosby's Memoirs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mosby's Memoirs by Colonel John S. Mosby. Chapter Two: The War Begins. I went to Bristol, Virginia, in October 1855, and opened a law office. I was a stranger and the first lawyer that located there. When attending court at Abingdon in the summer of 1860, I met William Blackford, who had been in class with me at the university and who was afterwards a colonel of engineers on General Stewart's staff. Blackford asked me to join a cavalry company which he was assisting to raise, and in which he expected to be a lieutenant. To oblige him I allowed my name to be put on the muster-roll, but was so indifferent about the matter that I was not present when the company organized. William E. Jones was made captain. He was a graduate of West Point, and had resigned from the United States Army a few years before. Jones was a fine soldier, but his temper produced friction with his superiors, and greatly impaired his capacity as a commander. There were omens of war at this time but nobody realized the impending danger. Our first drill was on January Court Day, 1861. I borrowed a horse, and rode up to Abington to take my first lesson. After the drill was over, and the company had broken ranks, I went to hear John B. Floyd make a speech on the condition of the times. He had been Secretary of War, and had lately resigned. Buchanan, in a history of his administration, said that Floyd's resignation had nothing to do with secession, but he requested it on account of financial irregularities he had discovered in the War Department. But to return to the campaign of 1860. I never had any talent or taste for stump-speaking or handling party machines, but with my strong convictions I was a supporter of Douglas and the Union. Footnote. Colonel Mosby was almost the only Douglas Democrat in Bristol that is to say, he was in favor of recognizing the right of a territory belonging to the United States to vote against slavery within its borders. The Breckinridge Democrats believed, especially after the decision of the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott case, in the right of the slaveholders to take their slaves into the territories and hold them there in slavery against the wishes of the inhabitants. End of footnote. Whenever a Whig became extreme on the slave question, he went over to the opposition party. No doubt the majority of the Virginia Democrats agreed with the Union sentiments of Andrew Jackson, but the party was controlled by a section known as the Chivalry, who were disciples of Calhoun, and got most of the honors. It was for this reason that a Virginia senator, Mason, who belonged to that school, was selected to read to the Senate the dying speech of the great apostle of secession and slavery, Calhoun. It proved to be a legacy of woe to the South. I met Mr. Mason at an entertainment given him on his return from London after the close of the war. He still bore himself with pride and dignity, but without that hauteur which is said to have characterized him when he declared in the Senate that he was an ambassador from Virginia. He found his home in the Shenandoah Valley desolate. It will be remembered that, with John Slidell, Mason was captured when a passenger on board an English steamer, and sent a prisoner to Fort Warren in Boston Harbor, but he was released on demand of the English government. 
Mason told us many interesting things about his trip to London, of a conversation with Lord Brougham at a dinner, and the mistake the London Post Office had made in sending his mail to the American minister, Charles Francis Adams, and Mr. Adams's mail to Mason. Seeing him thus in the wreck of his hopes, and with no future to cheer him, I was reminded of Caius Marius brooding among the ruins of Carthage. William L. Yancey of Alabama did more than any other man in the South to precipitate the sectional conflict. In a commercial convention, shortly before the campaign of 1860, he had offered resolutions in favor of repealing the laws against the African slave trade. Yancey attacked Thomas Jefferson as an abolitionist, as Calhoun had done in the Senate, and called Virginia a breeding ground for slaves to sell to the cotton states. He also charged her people with using the laws against the importation of Africans to create for themselves a monopoly in the slave market. Roger A. Pryor replied to him in a powerful speech. Yancey was more responsible than any other man for the disruption of the Democratic Party and, consequently, of the Union. He came to Virginia to speak in the presidential canvass. I was attending court at Abington, where Yancey was advertised to speak. A few Douglas men in the county had invited Tom Rives, a famous stump orator, to meet Yancey, and I was delegated to call on the latter and repair a joint debate. Yancey was stopping at the house of Governor Floyd, then Secretary of War. I went to Floyd's home, was introduced to Yancey, and stated my business. He refused the joint debate, and I shall never forget the arrogance and contempt with which he treated me. I heard his speech that day. It was a strong one for his side. As the Virginia people had not yet been educated up to the secession point, Yancey thinly veiled his disunion purposes. That night we put up Tom Rives, who made a great speech in reply to Yancey, and pictured the horrors of disunion and war. Rives was elected a member of the convention that met the next winter, and there voted against disunion. Early in the war, the company in which I was a private was in camp near Richmond, and one day I met Rives on the street. It was the first time I had seen him since the speech at Abingdon. I had written an account of his speech for a Richmond paper, which pleased him very much, and he was very cordial. He wanted me to go with him to the governor's house and get Governor Letcher, who had also been a Douglas man the year before, to give me a commission. I declined and told him that as I had no military training, I preferred serving as a private under a good officer. I had no idea then that I should ever rise above the ranks. A few days before the presidential election, I was walking on the street in Bristol, when I was attracted by a crowd that was holding a Bell and Everett meeting. Someone called on me to make a Union speech. I rose and told the meeting that I saw no reason for making a Union speech at a Bell and Everett meeting, that it was my mission to call not the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. This brought down the house. I little thought that in a few months I should be regarded as one of the sinners. I was very friendly with the editor of the secession paper in my town. One day he asked me what I intended to do in the case of a collision between the government and South Carolina. I told him I would be on the side of the Union. He said that I should find him on the other side. Very well, I replied, I shall meet you at Philippi. 
Some years after the war he called upon me in Washington, and jokingly reminded me of what I had said to him. As he was about my age, and did not go into the army, I was tempted to tell him that I did go to Philippi, but did not meet him there. Footnote. The editor in question, Mr. J. A. Sperry, of the Bristol Courier, has told the story in a somewhat different way. In writing his reminiscences of Mosby, he said, Mosby pursued the even tenor of his way until the memorable presidential campaign of 1860. So guarded had been his political utterances that but few of the villagers knew with which of the parties to class him, when he suddenly bloomed out as an elector on the Douglas ticket. This seemed to fix his status as a Union Democrat. I say seemed, for I am now inclined to think his politics was like his subsequent fighting, independent and irregular. We saw little of him in the stirring times immediately succeeding the election. One morning, about the middle of January, 1861, I met him in the street, when he abruptly accosted me. I believe you are a secessionist, per se. What has led you to that conclusion? The editorial in your paper today? You have not read it carefully, said I. There is nothing in it to justify your inference. In summing up the events of the week, I find that several sovereign states have formally severed their connection with the Union. We are confronted with the accomplished fact of secession. I have expressed no opinion either of the right or the expediency of the movement. I am not a secessionist per se, if I understand the term, but a secessionist by the logic of events. I am glad to hear it, he rejoined. I have never coveted the office of Jack Ketch, but I would cheerfully fill it for one day for the pleasure of hanging a disunionist per se. Do you know what secession means? It means bloody war, followed by feuds between the border states, which a century may not see the end of. I do not agree with you, I said. I see no reason why secession should not be peaceable. But in the event of the dreadful war you predict, which side will you take? I shall fight for the Union, sir, for the Union, of course, and you? Oh, I don't apprehend any such extremity, but if I am forced into the struggle I shall fight for my mother's section. Should we meet upon the field of battle, as Yancey said to Brownlow the other day, I would run a bayonet through you. Very well, we'll meet at Philippi, retorted Mosby, and stalked away. Several months elapsed before I saw him again, but the rapid and startling events of those months made them seem like years. I was sitting in my office writing, one day in the latter part of April, when my attention was attracted by the quick step of someone entering, and the exclamation, How do you like my uniform? It was a moment before I could recognize the figure pirouetting before me in the bobtail coat of a cavalry private. "'Why, Mosby!' I exclaimed. "'This isn't Philippi, nor is that a federal uniform.' "'No more of that,' said he, with a twinkle of the eye. "'When I talked that way, Virginia had not passed the ordinance of secession. She is out of the Union now. Virginia is my mother, God bless her. I can't fight against my mother, can I?' End of footnote. In April 1861 came the call to arms. On the day after the bombardment by South Carolina and the surrender of Fort Sumter that aroused all the slumbering passions of the country, I was again attending court at Abington, 
when the telegraph operator told me of the great news that had just gone over the wire. Mr. Lincoln had called on the States for troops to suppress the rebellion. In the preceding December, Floyd had ordered Major Anderson to hold Sumter against the secessionists to the last extremity. Anderson simply obeyed Floyd's orders. When the news came, Governor Floyd was at home, and I went to his house to tell him. I remember he said it would be the bloodiest war the world had ever seen. Floyd's was a sad fate. He had, as Secretary of War, given great offence to the North by the shipping of arms from the northern arsenals to the South, some months before secession. He was charged with having been in collusion with the enemies of the government under which he held office, and with treachery. At Donelson he was the senior officer in command. When the other brigadiers refused to fight any longer, he brought off his own men and left the others to surrender to Grant. This was regarded as a breach of discipline, and Jefferson Davis relieved him of his command. When Lincoln's proclamation was issued, the Virginia Convention was still in session and had not passed a secession ordinance, so she was not included with states against which the proclamation was first directed. With the exception of the northwestern section of the state, where there were few slaves and the Union sentiment predominated, the people of Virginia, in response to the President's call for troops to enforce the laws, sprang to arms to resist the government. The war cry, To arms! resounded throughout the land, and in the delirium of the hour we all forgot our Union principles and our sympathy with the pro-slavery cause, and rushed to the field of Mars. In issuing his proclamation, Lincoln referred for authority to a statute in pursuance of which George Washington sent an army into Pennsylvania to suppress the Whiskey insurrection. But the people were persuaded that Lincoln's real object was to abolish slavery, although at this inaugural he had said, quote, There has never been any reasonable cause for such apprehension that by the accession of the Republican administration their property and their peace and personal security were endangered. Indeed, the most ample evidence to the contrary has all the while existed, and been open to their inspection. It is found in nearly all the published speeches of him who now addresses you. I do but quote from one of those speeches when I declare that I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. End of quote. The South had always been solid for slavery, and when the quarrel about it resulted in a conflict of arms, those who had approved the policy of disunion took the pro-slavery side. It was perfectly logical to fight for slavery, if it was right to own slaves. Enforcing the laws was not coercing a state, unless the state resisted the execution of the laws. When such a collision came, coercion depended on which was the stronger side. The Virginia Convention had been in session about two months, but a majority had opposed secession up to the time of the proclamation, and even then a large minority, including many of the ablest men in Virginia, voted against it. Among that number was Jubal Early, who was prominent in the war. Nobody cared whether it was a constitutional right they were exercising, or an act of revolution. At such times reason is silent, and passion prevails. 
The ordinance of secession was adopted in April, and provided that it be submitted to a popular vote on the fourth Thursday in May. According to the state's rights theory, Virginia was still in the Union until the ordinance was ratified, but the state immediately became an armed camp, and her troops seized the United States Armory at Harper's Ferry and the Norfolk Navy Yard. Virginia went out of the Union by force of arms, and I went with her. End of chapter.